start this morning our journey through the book of First John. Um, it'll be our first book of study um, for me as your pastor, and so I'm looking forward to what the Lord has for us as a, as a group. Um, my goal this morning is really to just lay a, a foundation for the um, kind of the main theme of the book. There's, there's so much to be covered that I don't expect to even scratch the surface this morning in our study. But my prayer is, is that the Lord will allow you to come back week after week and we'll just take little bite-sized um, portions and, and see how the Lord kind of develops the text for us and, and grows us um, into his image. Um, if I were going to give this book kind of a title or a theme... Um, this is what I would give it. If you're taking notes, if you're taking notes this morning, you'll appreciate this sermon because it will be very, um, it'll have a lot of notes to be taken, okay? If I were going to give this book a theme, it would be a kind but firm help for a hurting church. A kind but firm help for a hurting church. Let me give you some statistics to begin with. Professing Christians in America, ABC News poll shows that 83% of Americans profess to be Christians. A Gallup poll says 75%. The Pew Research poll uh, says 71%. And a few other polls show between 71 and 80% of Americans claim to be Christians. And the reason I give you these statistics this morning is that the problem that John was dealing with in the first century church is very, very similar to the problem that we deal with today. And that problem is namely that the church has become so inclusive, um, open uh, to all different theologies and systems that... In doing that, it opens the door for a lack of discernment and also opens the door for um, false teachers. And what we see in the book of 1 John, if, as we study it together, the Lord actually um, gives them some pretty harsh warning about false teachers. Uh, chapter number 4 primarily talks about discerning the spirits. And don't just believe everybody and everything that anyone says, but, but try the spirits, test the spirits, make sure that they, they be from the Lord. Uh, make sure that the spirits are from God. Compare them to the word of God and scripture and make sure what they're saying is, is scriptural. Uh, this is something that you not only do out in the world, but even as I stand before you this morning or one of the other elders preaches, your job and responsibility is to be like the Bereans, to search the scriptures and to see that what I'm saying and what the other elders are saying is accurate and true. And we don't want you to believe us and then end up in eternal damnation. We want you to believe this book and end up in eternal life in heaven. The book, the word of God is what really matters not what we think. So your responsibility and our responsibility as, as believers is to open up the word of God, to study it and to see, um, are these things so? It obviously doesn't mean that you don't listen to your pastor or your elders, um, but, you, but you confirm what they're saying. You confirm what they're, what, what they're teaching. So the church became so 
inclusive, in other words, open-armed, uh, everybody and everything was welcome, that likely what happened was uh, a false teacher crept into the church. And, and John is writing to this church that a false teacher had crept into, and not just crept into, but if you look in chapter number two, the, the scriptures seem to imply that this false teacher actually splits the church. There's a church split over some doctrinal heresy. And that because of this church split, a number of people left with this false teacher. He doesn't get named. But it's fairly obvious that there is a group in verse 19 that leave. The Bible says in verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and now you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. In verse 19, he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. John makes a very specific statement that there's a group of people who used to be a part of our fellowship, used to be a part of who we are, but they're no longer a part of who we are. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they, wouldn't, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So you can kind of picture what's going on here in the text. This group of people has left, the church is really inclusive. They're just kind of open-armed and, and any doctrine can come in and, and infiltrate the church. And all of a sudden this false teacher, this real dynamic personality comes into the church and he starts drawing people away into, into following a, a certain doctrine. And, and in, in this context, it was Gnosticism. And we'll look a little bit at, this, at that this morning. But he starts to draw people away into this Gnosticism, this thinking that wasn't totally biblical, but it had some good things to think about. It had some good things to consider. It kind of had an, an ounce of good, but a pound of bad. And so he starts to draw people away, and, and there's no discernment there because there is no doctrinal teaching from the pulpit. So people don't really know, is what he's saying right? Is what he's saying wrong? And people begin to follow him, even to the point where the church splits, and a large portion of them, or at least a portion of them, split off, and the scriptures really don't tell us where they, where they end up. And um, they're always the unfortunate ones. When you have something like that happens, you always have a group that stays, you have a group that goes, and you have a, a group that flounders. And they're the ones that are hurt the most because they don't really know what to do. They're kind of like in the middle. Do we go here? Do we go here? What is truth? And a lot of times in those situations, people begin to even question truth, don't they? They begin to question truth. This is what First John is all about. And um, so, a few thoughts. Being inclusive is neither good or healthy for a church, and it ultimately leads to confusion and division. The lack of discernment and doctrinal teaching results in three things. Number one, it results in false converts. Number two, it results in new believers being left in their infancy, Okay? New believers that come to a local church are not meant to be left in their infancy. They're meant to be taught the word of God. 
They're meant to be taught the riches and the fullness of God's truth so that they can grow into a mature man or a mature woman in the Lord. And then, as I mentioned earlier, it opens the door for for false teachers who look for, guess what false teachers always look for? They look for infant believers, don't they? They look for the undiscerning. And when they find an undiscerning person, they're going to go to that undiscerning person. They're going to begin to sway them in their direction. And they always go after the undiscerning. Because they are, they're like vipers. They're looking for the weak. They're looking for those who they see as being vulnerable. And they're going to bring forth an attack. Here's what Paul tells Timothy about these people. In 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. And I like the King James Version. It says the word silly women. The idea of it is, is that they look for the vulnerable soul. They look for the person who's not perhaps deep theologically, and they look to, dry, to, to, to draw them away. He says that they are burdened with many sins and led away by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. One of the biggest dangers today of the inclusive church, and we have, we, America is that church, folks. America is the church that thinks being inclusive is the best thing, okay? One of the problems with the inclusive church is this, that it grows so fast that it's easy to desire what they have for your church. It's easy for us to look at some mega church on TV and say, you know what? What do they do that makes them a mega church? And then to say, we need to do that as well. So it's very easy to, to see in a church that's just kind of broad armed, all theologies fit, and say, we need to be like that. And obviously, we don't need to be like that. It's also dangerous sometimes to look at a church that's inclusive and decide to go there yourself because there's something about it. How many of you have ever, how many of you have ever seen a church that was just so growing so fast and there was so much excitement there that your conclusion was this has to be of, this has to be of the Lord. This movement couldn't happen without the Lord's hand. The problem with that is number one, it's not biblical. Is it? You know where that thinking comes from? It comes from our emotions. We're not to be driven by our emotions. We're to be driven by truth. It's especially dangerous. You've got a lot of teenagers in here. It's especially dangerous for you guys and you girls. You look at all the excitement that's going on at this church over here, and you think, well, that's got to be where God is. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Or is God in the place where his name is exalted and his word is honored and his word is respected and his word is taught and his son is magnified. Is that where God's presence is? You, you know the answer to that question. 
Spurgeon said this, and I'm paraphrasing. This is a quote from a long time ago that I read that I could not find again. So this is my version of what Spurgeon said, if you will. Spurgeon said, we stop preaching doctrine because it's offensive. Then we stop believing doctrine. Then we stop believing doctrine because if it's not worth preaching, it's not worth believing. And then ultimately we move to denying doctrine. Listen, we've got to be careful as a body, as a church, not to move into this idea of being inclusive is the answer. Being biblical is the answer. Paul said it this way to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Right? Preach the word. Be instant. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, none of those things fit into the all-inclusive church, do they? Reprove. God's instruction to young Timothy, the, the preacher, pastor, reprove and rebuke. Oh boy, we're not going down the right path, are we? This is what God's commandment is. This is what the church is about. It's about accountability. It's about responsibility. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering or patience and teaching. For the time is coming where people will not endure Sound doctrine. But they will have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Let me suggest to you that you can find a teacher that believes the way that you do. And nowadays they're they're as accessible as turning a knob on your radio or your TV. Is that why we come to church? Is that why we are Christians? Is so that we can find what we believe or so that we can have our beliefs challenged? So that we can enter into the presence of a God that is bigger than we are. That when we walk home, we don't have this view of, oh, I got everything that I believed already. But we go home and we see God for more than what we saw him for to begin with. We see God as being bigger than we've ever seen him before. Because listen to me, he is. I love how John Piper describes God. He says, we never want to magnify God like a microscope, which takes something very small and makes it look very big. But we want to magnify God like a telescope, which takes something that is massive and brings it closer to us. That's what our our ministry is about. That's what the church is about. It's not about being... Open-armed, it's about being biblical and being truthful. So John writes this book, and here's the passion of John's heart. John sees this church that is hurting. They, They are the group of people that's left behind after the other group left, and here's what their heart is. If you've ever been a part of an inclusive church, when everybody, a whole bunch of people leave, and you're left behind, here's, here's what your heart is, and here's what John's heart is towards these people. Here's what they're thinking. Are we wrong? Are we wrong? Did we, do we believe the wrong thing? And they begin to doubt. The people that John writes to 
begin to doubt whether or not they're right or the people who left are right. And this is the whole wrestling match that you will, as you study 1 John, as we unpack it together, the whole wrestling match is this. Are they right or are we right? It's a hard thing, isn't it? It's a difficult place to be, but, but if you, as you read 1 John and study it, uh, imagine our God, the creator and the sustainer of all things, that as he opens up his arms and wraps them around his little church and says, church, I love you. I care about you, and I want you to know the truth. First John doesn't have to be in the Bible. God could have said, hey, you know what? Just deal with it, church. But he wrote it because he cares about his little churches and his bigger churches, but God cares about his people. That's what First John is. First John is a compassionate, heartfelt love for his people that are hurting because they don't really know, am I right? Are we right? Or are we wrong. Let me give you some thoughts here, some facts. I'm not much of a factual preacher, but it has to be that way this morning. I like, I I am a factual preacher, (laughs) but I don't just like to be fact. I like to preach the word, so, but bear with me, okay? John was written by the apostle John, which is clear by, if you ever take first John and compare it to John, and there are just so many similarities that it's, it's, it's almost unquestionable that the author of John and the author of 1 John are the same. Now, what's interesting is neither one of them, either one of them books, claim to be the authors. Um, and neither one of them books, John names himself. Uh, he, 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 he refers to himself kind of in a third person. So, but we conclude, and, and most theologians outside of a few out there that... Um, or on the wrong track, amen, uh, that it's John who is the author. And most historical first century uh, theologians uh, made the claims in their writings that John was the author of First John. The dating of the, of the writing is probably or very likely A.D. 85 to A.D. 95. Okay, let me say this, this thought real quick. The reason the dating is so important is how far after this has Christ been off the scene? I mean, literally, we're talking about between 50 and 60 years that Jesus Christ hung on the cross, and here's where the church is. It doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't take long for us to move from walking with Jesus to being a church that doesn't like sound doctrine. We have to be guarded we have to be guarded. I, I did a study once, um, a, a couple of, of friends of mine back in the, a church that I pastored in Nebraska, we did a study on churches, and they showed statistically the fifth, a church will have a massive split right around its 50th anniversary. It's interesting because the time is very similar to what we're reading in 1 John. People have moved away from the presence of Christ and move to a a mindset of inclusivity. The heresy that's corrected in the book was Gnosticism, simply meaning it was an intellectual um, 
kind of, uh, we're better than you are because we know more. It was all based upon intellect. A few things that um, they believe that are important to our study is that matter was inherently evil and a spirit was inherently good. Okay, now listen, watch how this moves. Watch how this flows. It's important that we get this. Matter is inherently evil and spirit is inherently good. And most of us would think about that for a minute and say what? We'd say amen. In me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Paul says that, right? It would be very easy for this doctrine to even creep into our churches today. And it sounds so right. But then you take matter is evil and spirit is good and Jesus is can't be matter. Jesus can't be a man because Jesus is perfect. Jesus is good. Everything about Jesus is right. So he cannot be a man if matter is, you see how a a slight theological moving away from theological truth just slightly, just in a small way, can move us into being absolutely denying of Christ's humanity. There's not a single one of us in here who would deny Christ's humanity, I hope, this morning. Amen? Amen. But I wouldn't be stretching too far to say that there's not a lot of us that are vulnerable to a slight deviation from the truth that can ultimately lead to denying Jesus Christ's humanity. This church wasn't like they came in and said, Jesus isn't isn't a man, or Jesus isn't God, and the church is like, all right, we'll accept that. They came in and said, man is inherently evil. Spirit is inherently good. And they were like, yeah, we can embrace that. Right? We can embrace that slight alteration. And then guess where that slight alteration went? Listen to me, folks. In Genesis chapter number three, Genesis chapter number two, do you know how much Satan changed about God's words to Eve to get her to fall? Pray to huge theological problems? One word. That's all it takes. This is why we have to be grounded in the book, grounded in the word of God, because there are so many. He says, there are, he says Antichrist is going to come, but there are already what? There are already many of them in this world, and might I suggest to you that that was 2,000 years ago, and they aren't declining. There are more and more Antichrist coming into the world every single day. Gnosticism, man is evil, therefore Jesus Christ could not have been man. This theology led to what's known as asceticism, which is basically legalism. The body doesn't matter, so let's, let's basically beat it into subjection. The, the, the more things we, we limit our body to, and they would fast, and they would do a lot of things that were limiting of their, of their physical needs because they were like, the body doesn't really matter. And that was godliness to them. The more that this group could do, asceticists could do that was, that was punishment of their body, the more godly they were. What's interesting is this. Gnosticism created asceticism. It also created the very opposite of asceticism. 
it created this mindset that we can do whatever we want because the body doesn't matter. You see how error is? Error can create error, small error can create huge error over here, and it can create the exact opposite huge error. I heard a preacher once say that there are ditches on both sides of the street. You can be on this side in the ditch or on this side in the ditch. The problem is you're in the ditch. Antinomianism was the other side. We can do whatever we want. The body doesn't matter. The spirit matters. I can do whatever I want because I am a believer, because I am saved. Jude, verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only maker and Lord Jesus Christ. It all came from this idea that man is basically evil and God is basically, spirit is basically good. Slight problem. The purpose of the book, remember this, every book of the Bible, every word of the Bible starts with the foundation that it is there to glorify our God. When you open up God's word, you seek to find not man, not what man should do, not who man is, but you seek to find God. Because there's something in that text that is meant to promote who our God is. And I believe that 1 John is meant to promote how much God cares for his church and how much God cares for doctrine and truth. The purpose is to glorify God. Number two, It is to defend the deity of Christ. It is to defend the humanity of Christ. God, fully man, fully God, Jesus Christ. That probably didn't make any sense to you at all. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. 100%. Right? Amen? Amen? We believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. That is the way to salvation. The Lord is going to defend that. What's interesting, if you study God's word, John is written to describe Jesus Christ's deity. First John is written to defend it. Number three, it's meant to define and distinguish the church. First John is to describe and define and distinguish the local church. And when he does that, he is, 1 John 5, 13, he says, These things that have written unto you that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might know that you have eternal life. In defining them, he's reassuring them as believers. He's restoring their joy, and he's rekindling their unity. And I'm going to close with these last thoughts. These are some truths to take home with you, okay? Number one is God cares for his church. Number two, inclusivism leads to compromise. Not 95% of the time, folks, 100% of the time, if we have a mindset that is inclusive in nature, we will ultimately compromise the truth. Right? Number three, compromise on minor doctrine leads to confusion about major doctrine. Compromise on the small things leads to, at the very least, confusion about the big things. And at the most, it leads to rejection of the big things. 
Compromising is never good. Number four. Number four. Just because someone says something doesn't make it true. Okay? You will find this statement, especially in chapter number one, consistent. That they say something that is true about themselves. If you say that you are walking in the light, but you're a liar and the truth is not in you, right? Just because somebody says they're a believer, just because somebody says they follow Christ, doesn't necessarily make it so, does it? Right? If I'm a follower of Christ, you won't need me to say it as much as you'll be able to what? You'll be able to see it. Matter of fact, people who are constantly vocalizing how much they follow Christ sometimes might be struggling to actually follow Christ. Matthew chapter number seven, we will know them by their words. We will know them by their fruits. We live in a culture, folks, that's, that wants you to think that what I say about myself is true, don't we? And we think very lowly of ourselves or we think very highly of ourselves. The last thing that we want to trust, folks, is our own words. Just because someone says something doesn't make it true. Number five. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. You'll see this throughout this uh, book, 1 John, 21 times the word know is used. The Greek word is gnazo, and it, it, means, it means to know, and, it, and it's referring to an intellectual knowledge. And for the most part in this book, it's, it's referring to the fact that you say something is true, but it's not true because you don't really know God. Knowing God intellectually is not, like, is not the same as knowing God in your heart. Salvation is not knowing about God. Salvation is about being in a relationship with God. The Bible says in John 17 and verse 3 that this is life eternal, that they might know him. And this is not know intellectually. This is know relationally. It's the same term that's used about Mary and Joseph, that they did not know each other. It's a serious relationship term. First John is dealing with knowing in the head. Knowing God in the head is not the same as knowing God in the heart. The Bible tells us in James chapter number two that the devils know God in their head, right? It doesn't even use the word know. It says they believe in God. And they even tremble. But they do not know God in their heart. The last thing that I want you to take home this morning is this. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. There's no more important thing. There's nothing more important in life than knowing whether or not you have a relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the scripture says, examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves, try yourselves to see if you are truly a child of God.
I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor. I grew up thinking, um, basically through my whole teenage years, I grew up thinking that because I grew up in a Christian home and my dad was a pastor, that I was going to heaven. Everything was good. Eternal life was mine because of who my dad was. I never really understood that I was a sinner, that I was depraved, that I needed Jesus Christ to be my Savior, not my dad's Savior being passed down to me, but I needed to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ that was mine. The Bible says for us to examine ourselves. The idea is literally to, to do an inventory. Do an inventory. And not, this, is not, this word is not like this idea of just kind of passing, oh yeah, yeah, look at that. No, it's the idea of doing this detailed inventory of your life. Saying, you know something? Is God there? And then being honest with yourself. Being sober-minded, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. So as we go through the book of John, my prayer is to, to breathe God's heart, to encourage us as a church, to encourage us with who we are in Christ, to encourage us in who Christ is, and to ultimately bring unity, bring joy, as the text says, and bring confidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for your word, and we thank you that you have a heart for us. You care enough to write a whole book about struggling churches. We deal with them all the time, and we know that you have a heart for them, and we pray that you would help us to learn, to listen to your word, to grow because of it. We pray your blessing upon the remainder of our service, Lord God. Might you be glorified in it, in Christ's name.